right now at Honda, find your kind of value with a low finance rate offer on selected Civic hatch and sedan models. There's never been a better time to get into a Civic. So talk to your local dealer and let's help you into a Honda today. T's and C's apply. Ends August 31st. See website for details. You're listening to Errol Parker and Clancy Overall, editors of the Batuta Advocate on Desert Rock FM. Good afternoon, Batuta. It's that special time of the week again. It's time for the Batuta Advocate radio show with me, Clancy Overall, and Errol Parker. Yes, it is, Clancy. Broadcasting live from the Koala Studios on Daru Street, uh, the latest from the news desk at the top of the hour. Traffic is back back all the way to Arthur Road in South Batuta, just before the French Quarter exit. There's been a smash in the heart of town. Try to avoid the intersection of Cornwallis and Jones Streets in the old city district if you can. What else has been happening around town, Clancy? Well, a Batuta Heights man has just been convicted of his seventh DUI this morning at the local courts. Dennis Scholes of Rosemount Road told the court that if there was a better public transport option at night, he wouldn't have to drive. What am I supposed to do? Walk? I'm sorry, I thought capitalism won the Cold War so we don't have to ride the bus. A brazened armed robbery was foiled overnight at the Dolphins Leagues Club by a group of patrons hell-bent on protecting their beloved club. Two masked men brandishing knives entered the premises just after midnight and were met with a medley of bar stools and other assorted furniture that was not already bolted to the floor. Manager Jock Campbell described the scene. Yeah, it was wild. Should have seen it. These blokes just came in wearing balaclavas and told us all to get on the floor. Old Len jumps up, threw a stool at one of them, made a real nice clang against his melon. Peter Green picked up the ashtray off the bar, frisbeed the thing into the other bloke's throat from across the room. You'd only believe it if you saw it. Couldn't make it up. The two alleged robbers are still at large and police are appealing for witnesses to come forward. They're both described as being around 180 centimetres tall, medium build and wearing Nike Air Force One trainers. Well, I guess that's it for local news. What's been happening around the country and indeed the world this week, Errol? Well, the Banking Royal Commission has been hogging inches across many newspapers around the week. I think we even covered it. What do we do again? Uh, the headline goes, uh, Turnbull concedes that he had to give banks time to shred documents before the Royal Commission. Yes, the Prime Minister told the media this week that he admits failures were made on the government's part in delaying the Royal Commission into the banking industry. In addition to that, Malcolm Turnbull also conceded and defended his judgment, saying he had to give banks time to prepare for the investigation. Yeah, the PM said to us uh, there were a number of important documents that needed to be shredded. There were offshore bank accounts that had to be dusted off, you know, all that boring banker speak. To the layperson, he said, uh, the banks need to make sure that they were fully prepared and compliant in time for the Royal Commission. If it were to start without the banks being prepared, it would have cost the taxpayer even more money and taken jobs overseas. Turnbull finished by saying, is that why the people of Australia elected my government to power? No. Kane Frankston has texted in saying, Malcolm actually couldn't comment until now because he was holding back a week-long tennis tournament in Point Piper with a bunch of banking friends. Their backhands were aplenty. And another backhanded compliment was handed down to the Prime Minister with a headline that we published earlier. Turnbull attempts to feel disgusted at Banking Royal Commission's findings. Yeah, the Prime Minister had to laugh off the suggestion that he pretended to be horrified at the Royal Commission's findings, telling our reporters he always thought the banking sector was above board. Turnbull said at a press conference this week, I can assure you, when I was a banker, things were a lot different. Many journalists, you know, even ones from News Corp publications, couldn't help but laugh at the end of that press conference. Some were saying that, you know, how can he say that with a straight face after working in emerging markets at Goldman Sachs for so long? 
But apparently Turnbull is uh, sticking to his guns, explaining that it's mostly everyday transaction banks, you know, like your Commonwealth, your Big Four, stuff like that. They're the real focus of the investigation, not the larger investment banks where the Prime Minister cut his teeth. Yes, one reporter from the SBS was actually dragged out of the presser by his ponytail after rolling eyes at the Prime Minister. And Sam Webster from the Flight Path District uh, on the text line, he reckons it's time for Malcolm to bust out the leather jacket and catch a tram. Rob Healy from The Quarter says he's waiting for Michaelia Cash to tip off the media regarding a prospective arrest of a bank executive. Yeah, it's not the first time she's threatened to name names. Yeah, and we wrote a story uh, this week about how the same sort of people are always responsible for these royal commissions, uh, whether they're friends of Michaelia's or not. The headline on that story read, North Shore Sydney Private Schools to Blame for Yet Another Royal Commission. Yeah, a combination of those uh, elite bourgeois private schools on Sydney's North Shore have come out and apologised for the hand that they played in producing some of the biggest offenders in the current inquiry into the banks and financial services firms. And forgive me if I muddle this name up, listeners. Hugo Griffinley Whitebow is a spokesman for the prominent ex-private school old boy group, the representative institution of childhoods only at elite education or rich boys, has come out and said, we are sorry for this. At least you can't blame us for the Don Dale Commission. That's some low-level family-ruining shit. Charming. The Royal Commission has been asked to investigate whether any of the Silvertail mates of Tony Abbott, who are working at Australia's financial services entities, have engaged in misconduct, and if criminal or other legal proceedings should be referred to the Commonwealth. It comes at the back of the Royal Commission into institutional responses to child abuse, which also saw the exclusive institutions of North Sydney private schools to blame for a fair chunk of the misconduct, but mainly their educators, as opposed to students. Well, let's not forget about the uh, the coalition's perennial bridesmaid and ex-private schoolboy Scott Morrison, Clancy. Yes, let's not forget about ScoMo at all. We spoke to the Treasurer earlier this week in a story that was titled, Morrison says this shit he knew about for years is not a good look for the banks. Yeah, he said he was going to implement new criminal penalties of up to 10 years and maximum fines of up to $945,000 for individuals doing stuff that he has known about for years. Some of the initial findings show rampant breaching of the Corporations Act, actions which have ruined the lives of thousands of Australians and until now only a really a sackable offence upon being caught, with very few bankers facing criminal prosecutions. Mr Morrison said government agencies already knew about the problems identified by Commissioner Kenneth Hayne, which included low-level corruption, kickbacks and poor lending standards. He said, I can't believe this shit I've known about for years has been happening for so long. ScoMo did say that to us, though, that he'll try and do as much as he can about this. But it's not like they've done anything super immoral like claiming Centrelink without declaring an income of over $235 redos a week. Yes, Centrelink will come for you. You might need a royal commission into the banks to actually uh, hold some of those uh, high-end lenders and uh, finance types accountable. But, you know, if you find yourself walking away with a bit more than you should at Centrelink, they'll come and find you. They don't need a royal commission into that. Well, I think that... I think this is a good point then to bring in our guest, uh, Glenn Drury, who is an election campaigner and political strategist who's versed in the dark arts of democracy, as you would say. Yes, his name is the Preference Whisperer. He's responsible for some of the most obscure political figures in both state and federal elections around Australia. We can talk about the political games that were played to prevent this Royal Commission until the cows come home, but there really is only one person in this country that knows the game as well as today's guest, and that's him. He's one of the true political animals in Parliament House, and he's owed a lot of favours, but of course, with that comes a lot of enemies. It's for this reason we've had to host this interview on his boat today. 
So please forgive the lapping water in this interview, listeners, as we were located somewhere in the Gulf of Carpentaria and had to get a few beers into him before he really gave us anything. Well, here we are with uh, Glenn Drury, uh, a iconic member of, uh, of the Australian political machine, uh, a cog, you could say, sitting in his boat in the Gulf of Carpentaria, Errol um, yep. and myself. M- Mr. Drury, we'll just start by uh, asking you if you can, in simplest terms, describe your current profession. I'm a senior advisor to Darren Hinch, Senator Darren Hinch, and when I'm not doing that, at election times, uh, I've been doing, for the past 20 years or so, playing with numbers and helping ordinary people enter the political process. The media dubbed me first the preference harvester, then the preference whisperer. So I'm just waiting to become an ism somehow. Could you help me with that? Druism. <laughs> Druism. I don't know. Glenism? Glenism. Glenism. The school of Glenism. The school of Glenism. Yeah. Sounds like a disease, really. <laughs> no, maybe not ism. <laughs> so, um, so in layman's terms, how do you take these numbers? This, uh, I'm assuming it's raw data that's been in the headlines recently now with with Facebook and and the Cambridge Analytica thing. They're all been harvesting numbers and data. So, how do you use that data to springboard normal everyday people into the political sphere? No, I tend to ignore most of that stuff, really. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm lucky. I think perhaps maybe I was dropped on my head when I was a baby, but um, I can look at numbers, political numbers, and they tell me a story. Uh, and I'm very fortunate that, that um, I've been able to help lots of ordinary people enter the political process for the last 20 years. So what skills do you need to, to do what you do? Basic maths. I mean, I think Anthony Green could do part of what I do, but... Uh, I don't know that his interpersonal skills are probably where yeah. they should be. Um, so and, just and Anthony is very good at figuring out what I've done after I've done it. So political, numerical, um, uh, entrepreneurialism, I suppose, with an understanding of how the system works, the ability to get along with people, understanding the political process. I guess, I mean, they're all the things that are important to do what I do. It's it's And it's a lot of fun. I think that's the most important thing for me is enjoying what I do, and well, beating Vegas. And that bit, I guess, I love the most. And I've been beating Vegas for a long time. So over the past 20 years, who are some of the people you've helped, uh, these ordinary people that you've helped uh, into Canberra and, and to other? Most um, obscure? Well, probably the most famous is Ricky Muir. Yeah. Um, I've helped lots and lots and lots of people, and some of them, I guess, can't talk about because unless my clients choose to go public, then I never disclose who they are. Yep. So we talk about a couple that I've helped. Ricky Muir for one, Darren Hinch another. Uh, at one time, my fingerprints were on seven of the eight crossbench during the so-called feral years that the last Prime Minister dubbed the Senate. I've worked with both major parties, even the Greens over the years. Um, but I think Ricky Muir probably stands out as the most prominent from Ricky's point of view, was truly the accidental senator. He was never meant to be there. He was not a client. He paid me no money. In fact, the reason Ricky is there is because my client in Victoria, who started off life as a used car salesman, and I'm sure there's some wonderful used car salesmen out there, decided that he wasn't going to pay my bill. And then he threatened me with all sorts of legal action and whatnot, and... um, I just flipped a few numbers around. I picked the most innocuous person I could find, and we put Ricky there. 
Um, and as it happens, Ricky Ricky turned out to be a pretty good senator toward the end of the day. He, yeah. he was a little bit uh, green at first, a little bit slow on the uptake at first, but uh, as he settled in, Ricky was starting to develop, to develop that reputation of the everyone's senator. Yeah. And he really connected well with people in the burbs and people in little towns. I mean, Ricky settled into the role, but anyone yeah. who from the get-go, or even a, a political movement from the get-go, um, come across as actual unsung political operators. Is there anyone there that you that you think's a bit underrated in, in, in how they get around? The first guy that I put in in 1999, Malcolm Jones. Let me give you a little bit of history on how this started. I wanted to form a middle-of-the-road-based environment political party, which I did. It was called the Outdoor Recreation Party. And at that time, I was right into bushwalking and mountain biking and camping and all those sort of fun things, and uh, very keen on environmental issues. But I felt that the Greens had just gone a little bit too far. They were borderline on Trotskyites and, and all sorts of things. So I wanted a political party that, that you know, people like me that recycle their garbage could, could uh, associate with. The mistake I made was to get mixed up with a guy called Malcolm Jones, who was connected to the Four Drive Association, but I was blinded by, I said earlier about beating Vegas, I was blinded by this intellectual challenge of getting somebody elected who was a nobody, who had no money and who had, at the end of the day, pulled 7,000 primary votes. He proved to be a very big disappointment in that this gift that I had given him, I think was it a year or maybe 18 months, perhaps two years later, he was in front of ICAC and essentially run out of dodge for being corrupt and lying to the parliament. So you asked me about unsung heroes, didn't you? Well, he was, what do they say in the castle? What's the opposite to unsung heroes? Because <laughs> that's what he was. Yeah. <laughs> so just to, uh, just to deconstruct exactly what you do for those playing at home, you get these votes for these small, innocuous parties and you pull them together to kind of put it behind one person, which hopefully gets them across the line. Oh, in simple terms, yeah. yeah. That's it. Yep. Yep. And, it, and, it, and it's not hopefully. Can you expand on that? I can expand on that. Look, it's what you've got to do in this process is, is work together. All the little guys, little girls have to work together. Before I came along, there was no organisation within the minor party structures and their primary votes were dissipating through preferences all over the place. It was this preferential shrapnel flying in all directions, and it was predominantly benefiting the major parties. What I put to the minor parties was work together. Regardless of, of the colour of your policy, of whether you're you know green, or blue, pro, pro this, pro anti that, work together. Because what you have in common is it is you versus the major parties. And the major parties, sure as shit, don't want you there. And that's what they did. And uh, since I started doing this, well, we've seen a proliferation of what I like to term ordinary people entering parliaments all over the country. Uh, almost every state at one time or other in the last 20 years has had minor parties with the balance of power. We see it in the Senate right now. We had it in the Senate in the last government where minor parties had the balance of power. And good things are being done, or should I say bad things are being stopped. Minor parties stopped the $7 Medicare co-payment. They stopped the 40% increase in tertiary education fees that Christopher Pine wanted to, to put upon us. They saved ARENA. They saved the Clean Energy Finance Corporation and so many more things. So I don't accept what the, minor, what the major parties say, that, that, that uh, we are somehow playing the system. 
The system was put there by the major parties to benefit the major parties. What I've done is loaded their own gun and pointed it back at their heads. Yeah, and, they, and, they've, and they've tried to stop you through laws. Oh, well, they have. I, I, I guess I'm the only guy in the country that's had laws initiated to stop me doing what I do. Is it four or is it five times now? But most recently with the so-called Senate reforms, I, I don't like to use the word reform because reform implies it's somehow better, but the changes made to the Senate voting system prior to the double dissolution election. And those changes were pushed through by the government with the support of the Greens and Nick Xenophon. And I warned them. I warned them that if you do these things, it will be a fast track for Pauline Hanson. And it was. Pauline Hanson was elected. If, if we had had the, the same system that we had uh, in the past, I would have stopped her. Make no mistake about it. I would have stopped her. I've been stopping Hanson for 20 years. I went public on that just over a year ago after Senator Brian Burston uh, made all sorts of scurrilous claims against me under parliamentary pri privilege in, in Coward's Castle. And um, I would have stopped Pauline Hanson. So one might say that the Greens and Xenophon, with the coalition government, are responsible for Hanson being in parliament. Well, you in fact, one might not say that. That is absolutely the case. The Greens and Xenophon put Hanson in the, in the parliament. Well, you recently appeared on the 7.30 report um, on the ABC um, where a lot of people did learn that you had, in fact, been working previously as, a, as an advisor, and that's with very big quotation marks, uh, for One Nation and... Pauline Hanson. How, how did that come about? How did you find yourself going from, from the small fringe to the big fringe, to the big bangs? I guess we've got to go way back to the late 90s when Hanson first appeared, and I disliked her policies from the beginning. Personally, I've met Pauline many times. I don't find her offensive as, a, as an individual, but I find many of her policies very offensive. I was in a position where I could do something about that, and I did. I did by diverting preferences away from her and her apparatchiks at critical points, at critical elections and at critical times in the count. And You had her locked out. I had her locked out. Yeah. She was out. Yeah. And here she is back. And there's nothing I can do to stop her in the federal parliament now. So have they done, other, other than her policies that you disagreed with back in the day, I imagine you still kind of do disagree, they've just... <clears throat> They've remained pretty similar apart from, you know, she's replaced well, she replaced the, the minorities with new minorities. Originally, she, she didn't like Aboriginals. Mm -hmm. uh, then she didn't like Asians. And now she doesn't like people of a particular religious faith. And I just wonder what type of Australia we would have today. Just think about it. If Hanson was around post-World War II, could you imagine what the Pauline Hanson of, say, 1948 might have said? We don't want those Greeks here. We don't want those Italians or those Yugoslavs here. What would Australia look like today without this wonderful blend of, of these people from all over the world? I think the most exciting thing that we would get in Woolies would be coon cheese. Yeah, there'd be a lot what, less concrete what, around too. Oh, there'd be a lot less concrete around. I think things we take for granted, like the cappuccino in the morning, yep. that wouldn't be here. So when you're working to undermine Hanson, um, so you are essentially a mole on the inside of the organisation. I never charged her any money. Right. right. Never. But you were a double agent of sorts. She she thought you were her guy. 
she was under the proviso that you weren't actively trying to I was <laughs> I, I was doing what I like to term a community service. Yeah. Yep. And I did it well. Mm-hmm. I kept mm-hmm. her out for a long, long time. Have you felt any consequence from doing that? Have you have you burnt None. a bridge with one nation? Um They'll be back. Well, look, look. I, you know, gone are the days now where I can give them advice and they'll blindly follow it. And that that advice was designed, yep. you know, it was like giving them the political version of arsenic. Yeah. And they took it every time, and and with a little spoonful of sugar, and and that was it. They were done. It, time after time after time. And you know what? It's not personal to me. Politics is like a game of footy. When it's on, it's on, and you do what you can within the rules to destroy the other person. Mm-hmm. And afterwards, have a beer. And that's how I like to play professionally too. Are you done with One Nation? Do you reckon there's a bit more dying they could do? There's nothing much that I can do them federally. Uh, in New South Wales, of course, after 1999 and the tablecloth ballot paper, the rules were changed, so not much I can do them in New South Wales. I did um, put a big spanner in the works for them at the last Western Australian election in March uh, of last year. About two months out, One Nation were polling such that they would have, should have and could have won nine seats. They were polling upwards of 25 to 30% in some places. And that's in the Senate? That's in the Upper House. Yep. Now, on the numbers of, of po- the polling that they were achieving at the time, they would have won nine positions. Three things happened which screwed them up. The first thing is that disastrous and most ludicrous preference deal with the Liberal Party. I mean, that had a double atomic bomb in that it, it harmed the Liberals and contributed to that landslide against the Liberals over there. Uh, and it also had a very negative effect on One Nation voters. There were a lot of One Nation voters who, who detest the Liberal Party, so yeah. they didn't vote for the Liberal Party. And ironically, one of the, or two of the, the groups that did well were the Shooters, Fishers and Farmers Party and the Nationals. The Nationals actually increased their vote across the board. And I put that down not to any skill from the Nats because, you know, apart from drinking whiskey on the bad porch and whittling sticks and chewing past palem. There's not a lot of talent in the Nats, I can assure you, especially in WA. Although we could talk about Brendan Grills and how he was torched by Gina Reinhardt, but that's another story. That disastrous preference deal was the first spoke to break for One Nation. Was that a hospital pass from you? Was that a, the, the deal they did with the Liberals? Uh, no, I was on the outer by that time. Yep. Yep. Definitely on the outer. Burston, Senator... Brian Burston from New South Wales had finally woken up. <laughs> it took him a little while, but he finally woke up. The second thing that was, was uh, a problem for One Nation was their greatest asset and also their greatest liability, and that is Pauline Hanson herself. I could show you on a graph on how their polling went down. Two weeks out from the election when Hanson came into town, they were in free fall, mate. You was pulled the ripcord. Every time she opened her mouth, it was on the front page. I mean, she said Putin was a good bloke, and mm-hmm. it just so happens that the family that died on that plane that Putin ordered to be shot down yeah. came from WA, yeah. came from Perth, yeah. for goodness sake. So that put them in free fall in the polls. But they still could have and should have won six seats. They only won three, and it was me and doing my preference work that stopped them picking up those three seats in the city. You were working with you, you. Can't say which parties you were working with in that in that circumstance. Oh, in WA. Yeah, yeah, I can. I look. I worked with a rather obscure party over there called the Fluoride Free Party. Yeah, 
which which were nearly they were nearly elected. <laughs> uh, the Daylight Saving Party, the, the Western Australians, like the Queenslanders, are still a little bit behind the rest of us and mm-hmm. worrying about the <clears throat> curtains. Yeah, well, and the cows and the cows, and you know, I think they need to look at uh, all the tomatoes we produce here with the extra hour of sunlight. <laughs> so the gnats are in real trouble. The Nats have been on a bit of a flat to downhill run for the last 20 years. Do you think there's any real competition for them in um, in the real regional areas? Oh, like yeah, absolutely. In the far west? In, uh, Have a look. In just, the far just southwest? Watch what's going to happen in the New South Wales election of March of next year. I am aware that the shooters, fishers and farmers are targeting the nationals in some of their seats, and so is One Nation. Now, <laughs> interestingly... The bottom line of what might happen there is the Greens could pick up seats, particularly in the north, particularly around Lismore, particularly yeah. up in the Tweed. In Byron. Yes, yeah. in the, all of those areas. And we've got we've got some Greens up there now. The Greens are very strong up there. Uh, and and even if, the Nats up there are half green. The, the, well, I suppose they'd have to be, wouldn't they? Yeah. Up there. They're, they're, they're half something. I'm not sure quite what, what they are, but, but they're half like something. How about, you know, like how about, for example, around Batuta, well, you know, our... Um, our local member out there is David Littleproud. Uh, he's, he's now... Um, How would you go with a name like that at school, eh? Littleproud. <laughs> you... Better than Littlecock, well, I suppose. Apparently he was a bit of a bully at school, you know, so he's got that. <laughs> is that right? Yeah, makes a good uh, fruitcake as well, I heard. Yeah, and anyway. So does Pauline Hanson, actually. Right. She um, does make a good fruitcake. And salmon and cucumber sandwiches with the crust cut off. Right. Very nice. So oh, but shop in Ipswich. He does have a bit of competition up there, you know, from the... From the catters and whatnot. By the way, the catters did very well in Queensland. If we just want to talk about numbers for a minute on on the comparison to Catter and Pauline Hanson's One Nation Party, all of this hype about One Nation going up there and picking up ten to twenty seats in Queensland, never for one yeah. minute did I accept that. In fact, I predicted six months out that they would win zero, unless they were preferenced by the LNP. In fact, they were preferenced by the LNP, and they won one seat, and they pulled roughly fourteen percent across the state almost a million dollars in public funding, and they win one seat. Catter, on the other hand, pulls roughly 3% across the state and wins three seats. Hello? Yeah. <laughs> Hello? What's going on? Yeah. So you reckon he's talking the talk? Well, Catter's been around a long time, Yeah. in fact. Catter's an interesting man. You know, I, I've met him many times. He's the only bloke that I've ever met that has the ability to interrupt himself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, we've all been there before. You know, and I, and I, 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 I've got to say, there is logic in his argument during the yeah. same-sex marriage debate when he said, "I don't have time to talk about this same-sex nonsense." Crocodiles are eating people in Queensland. Yeah. I can see that. Yeah. Can you yeah. see that? Yeah. yeah. No more time to talk about it. No. May a thousand no. blossoms bloom. In fact, during this interview, I suspect several Queenslanders have probably been eaten by crocodiles. Yeah. Um. That would actually went as far as doing an ABC fact check on that one. It was, that, that, that was um, yeah. probably the take of the day after the gay marriage vote. By the way, I, I, this Batuta advocate bitter of yours, it was just Batuta bitter. Yeah, yeah. It's a, very it's good. A local like very good. Yeah. Is this just something you've rebranded out of China? No, no, no. It's artesian no. ball water. Are you no. sure about that? You yeah, didn't no. get no. It's, no, no. We don't. We're not in clean skins. <laughs> it's made by clean skins. a very apt young man from the north who's come down to uh, spearhead the cosmopolitan renaissance that we're currently having in Batuta. Right. Is, uh, right. Well, well that was Bob Catter had a policy. I have a mate that uh, caught, caught a flight with him once, and it was probably when he was really hitting his straps as an independent. And he had a plan to 
create a canal in the middle of Australia. Have you heard this one? Yeah. What do you reckon's... Not yet. He reckons, no. yeah, there's a bit of bit of land. Uh, apparently, he, he... Excavating. He wanted to dig a channel um, at, um, at a Gulf of Carpentaria. Oh, well, that's into, good. Um, that's No, that's good. That... Into, into, into the mineral belt. Then he got asked, he goes, Oh, no, I, I don't think that's feasible. So I'm going to ask for $10,000 million for a train line in the Galilee Basin. A thousand million dollars. Is that what he says? A thousand million dollars. A thousand million dollars. <laughs> yeah, he says a thousand well, million. It's like, what's that, Bobby? He goes, one billion! <laughs> you pelican! You, you've told us that you both use your powers for good and for and for not so good. Well, hang so on. Hang a... on. Well, let's define not so good. <laughs> what's not so good? Uh, no, I'd say... I, you haven't really given me an example yet. Um, but have you, is, have, you, have you put anyone in that you regret? Well, I regret Malcolm Jones. Yeah, the yeah. very first guy I put in, I regret that. Because... So the policies get a bit scarier? Has that ever happened to you? Were they kind of... Well, no, he, he uh, betrayed me, yeah. for starters. Um, I put in there, and he betrayed me. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, which, if there's one thing I can't tolerate at this level of politics, is rats yeah. and lies. Mm-hmm. You, yeah. you know, I need trust, absolute trust in what I do. My reputation is all I have. And it's the reason I've been able to do what I do for the past 20 years. How do you choose? Like, you know, you, you've got this big sort of list of parties that's got, you know, everyone from the flat earthers to the anti-vaxxers to the, no, to the no boot polish party to, well, to look, the no haircut party. You know. Yeah, look, I, I... How do you choose? Well, if you came to me and said, I want to get elected, mm-hmm. I want to enter politics... Batuta, the Batuta Australia Party. The Batuta Australia Party. BAP. Would that work? Yeah. Um, so the first thing I would do is interview you. Yeah, We'd go for a coffee. You don't know I'm interviewing you. We're yeah. just having a chat. Yeah. And I have to determine whether you've got what it takes at at a strategic level. I'm not initially, I don't want to talk about your policies unless you're a crazy, a total crazy. And there are some crazies out there. And I just We don't even get to the coffee stage. So we'll have a coffee and a chat. And do you have what it takes to play the game of, of getting elected? And if you get through that, then we'll talk a deal on what's going to happen and how we got, and we've got to play the game. So I have worked with an eclectic bunch of people over the years, and I think that all of them have made a valuable contribution in their own way because what a great political system. And I've just told you how much I dislike One Nation, but isn't it a great system that allows a One Nation to exist mm-hmm. or the Greens to exist or the Shooters or, or the Sex Party? I think it's a wonderful grown-up and mature system that allows a diversity of views and opinions in our parliaments. Mm-hmm. So hypothetically, would it be outside the realm of possibility that we'd be able to get someone from Batuta into the Red Room? One of us. Unless you come to me and you say, I've got a million dollars for my campaign. In other words, if you're another Clive Palmer or if you're a Darren Hinch or a Jackie Lambie or a Pauline Hanson, in, in other words, somebody that's very prominent, then it will be tough for you to be elected. So I'm sorry to say that it's not likely that we will see a senator from Batuta anytime soon. Okay. Well, that's a shame. Um, challenge accepted. Challenge accepted. How would have you done it pre-Xenophon um, Green's um, reform? Well, look, let, I, I guess if we talk about the most prominent person I've put in, which is Ricky Muir. Uh, Ricky started on just 0.5% or roughly 17,000 primary votes. Uh, as it turned out, his competition was Helen Kroger, who was on, she parked on roughly 12.5%. So we look at that, look at that graph of 
0.5% versus 12.5%. And Helen didn't really get much further than that. It was it was like Helen got uh, you know up that ladder and she was just two rungs shy of getting on the roof. And there was no way she could get there because I stopped that. I, I took those rungs out of that preferential ladder and diverted everything to Ricky. I mean, almost everything. And this was for a bit of fun? No, this was to to teach a particular individual a lesson that, that yeah, he yeah. lied to me. Yeah. He he uh, had a commitment to me. Uh, he shook my hand on a deal and he betrayed me. Yeah. And I I I take that very very seriously. Mm-hmm. So I picked the most innocuous nobody I could find and that was Ricky Muir. Who as I said earlier turned out to be not a bad senator toward the end. Yeah. After that election Helen came up to see me in the New South Wales Parliament and really she wanted to please explain what happened. How did that happen? How did I not win? And there were tears on both sides, I must say. And and for the first time I saw that human carnage of what I'd done. But uh, I just, I don't think I've ever said that public. I want to say it now that um, at a personal level, I'm sorry that that I did what I did to, to Helen Kroger. So basically that means that if we were to get someone from Batuta in, it would also cause some more human carnage uh, in Queensland. A little proud. But in politics, there's no prizes for second place. You win or you lose. In my view, Queensland will come down to uh, two Greens. Sorry, two Greens. Two Labor, one Green, two LMP, and most likely uh, Malcolm Roberts, if he's pre-selected, will come back for One Nation. Isn't that great? I loved it when Malcolm was there. I mean, you talked about the Flat Earth Society. I mean, <laughs> he's the Flat Earth Society with bumps. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but he's just gone on to, na- on to national television and just made a cunt of himself. Like, just, you know, with like a world-renowned scientist. Yeah, yeah, that was, uh, that was a big... But he's entertaining. And to me, I, I said to, to somebody, Malcolm Roberts is the top of the iceberg for One Nation. And he, he said, you mean top of the ice cube? <laughs> and he really is. He's, he's a very funny political lunatic. <laughs> if Tony had knighted Richie Benno, we say this a bit, um, had used those powers that he briefly introduced to knight Richie Benno, he probably wouldn't have lost his job. Do you no. reckon that's... Do you think, that's, do you think uh, Prince Philip kind of uh, triggered his downfall? Or if he oh, look, I think Tony, Tony triggered Mickey. his own downfall. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I've negotiated with Tony Abbott and with the current Prime Minister, and uh, the difference is vast. <laughs> He's vast. Uh, now, t- let me preface this by saying Tony Abbott is a very good cyclist. Yeah. Yep. And, and uh, I'd love to get him to join me in a race across America sometime. We can talk about that in a minute. Um, when Tony Abbott... It took us back to the days of the 1950s where there would be knights and dames and ladies and whatnot. There was a very interesting and what I thought funny protest. Somebody got to the road signs between Sydney and Melbourne and changed the metric back to Imperial. (laughs) (laughs) I thought that was really good. (laughs) Let's just go back to the last century. (laughs) Um, You're road racing. How did you get into that and how does... How is... In, in my early 30s, um, I was wrongly diagnosed with um, bowel cancer and told that I didn't have long to live. Uh, now I could go into all the details of what happened over the next two years, but I'll just get to the point of saying that I, I became very, very ill. Uh, I'm about 79 kilos now. I got down to just under 60 kilos at that point and I remember my son's fourth birthday. I was so weak that I couldn't push him on the swings. 
Uh, it was a terrible time. Ultimately, it was determined that I had diverticulitis. I had a third of my bowel removed, and I've been fine ever right. since. But what happened after that, uh, I remember coming out of hospital and had dinner, and I didn't get sick. And I had a half a glass of wine, and I didn't get sick. So I drank all of the wine, and I didn't get sick. So I drank the bottle. Yeah. And that continued for 12 months. And I went from roughly 60 kilos to 100 kilos. And I became Mr. Porker. Mm -hmm. And I remember watching a video of me on Christmas Day. And until I realized it was me, I, I said, who's that fat guy in the... That's me. <laughs> so the very next day, I decided I had to do something about it. And I rode my bike down to my parents' place on the Shoalhaven River, which was uh, about 160 k's. So you went, me. What? went straight like, into it. Just, just, just jumped into it. Just, that's like my life. Just jump in. The next day. Just, I, I near you know. died. I near died. I, I, I was on a shitty old mountain bike in shorts and, and T-shirt. 160 with, k's. I knew nothing about nutrition and exercise and sport. So I figured I better not eat breakfast. So it was just scorched earth. Let's get let's get some of this weight off. Oh, do it now. Just do it now. It was either that or liposuction. How I couldn't sore was your liposuction. gooch? It, 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 it was pretty sore. Roll it took me 12, 12, maybe 14 hours, as I recall, and I made it down to my parents' place. And I remember seeing my cousin, and I hadn't seen her in a couple of years, and, and she said to me, she said... <laughs> You look fucked. <laughs> you look like death. And that was the beginning. In 2003, I participated in the 1200K Parry Breast Parry, the oldest cycling race in the world. And it was there I met an American guy called James Kern, who invited me in 2004 to go and do the 5,000-kilometer race across America. That didn't come together. They had issues there. And, but in 2005, I did my first, first of four race across Americas. And it became part of my soul, part of who I am. Something happens to you in an ultra-distance event like a 5,000-kilometer race. You, you see yourself. It's like looking down your throat at who you are. With all of these social niceties stripped away and you see the real you. There's no hiding from that. Sometimes you disgust yourself in what you're doing. And other times you're on a high that I can't possibly describe in words. It is the most amazing, incredible experience of my life, outside of family, friends and loved ones, of course, but I've done it four times and I'm hanging to go back. <laughs> I'm hanging to go back. And you're hankering to do it one more time. Well, you? I went and actually spoke to Tony Abbott. Mm -hmm. Yep. Now, now let's forget about Tony Abbott's political view on the world, but he's a pretty good cyclist. Yep. And I said, Tony, would you like to do this? I'd like to put a team together and the former Premier of New South Wales, Reese, I made it known to him that um, I'd like to put a team together of politicos. Mm -hmm. um, that hasn't come together yet. You know, we've got issues as sponsors. Yep. Um, we could make an overt plea here to someone, some corporate out there that would stand to gain from the corporate tax cuts if they come through, if you're going to yeah. save millions, hundreds of millions of dollars, yep. throw a little bit my way and uh, sponsor us in Race Across America. Or what about Subway? They're a sponsor of yours, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Subway. How <laughs> about Subway? That up for us. Subway, well, uh, would you like to sponsor me and some other politicos to do Race Across America? And we would eat nothing but Subway. It's one of the key differences between the, t the two styles of, of Abbott and uh, Turnbull. Yep. Abbott would negotiate from Liberal Party principles and uh, would, be, would be very difficult to deal with. And when things didn't go his way, he'd call them names. Feral. Mm -hmm. 
Turnbull, on the other hand, negotiates with you know with his with his hands out and and how can I work with you? How can I deal with you? And to his credit, he has pushed through a lot of legislation, albeit you know legislation that starts out uh, looking like like X ends up looking like Y, <laughs> but nevertheless, he is. Um, Doing a much better job with the crossbench than did the former prime minister. Right. Well, we might um, we might wrap it up. Thanks for yeah. thanks for having us on your boat out here in the Gulf. Well, let's go and catch some prawns, eh? Yeah. Yeah. Some prawns all right. and some dolphins. Dolph- dolphin. Dolphin doesn't. It's no. It's not as good as bilby or platypus or yeah. those sort of things. It's so a we bit might. Gamey, you know. Is I, it? Yeah. yeah. Tastes like chicken, all of it. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, it all tastes like chicken. All right, Glenn. Thanks, mate. Thank you. Good on you. And that was Glenn Drury, listeners. Uh, we're at the top of the hour. Murray's giving us the hurry on. Up next is Hollow Sport. So until next week, I'm Errol Parker. Hooroo. I'm Clancy Overall. You be kind to each other. Right now at Honda, find your kind of value with a low finance rate offer on selected Civic hatch and sedan models. There's never been a better time to get into a Civic. So talk to your local dealer and let's help you into a Honda today. T's and C's apply. Ends August 31st. See website for details.